This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to the show and welcome back, Eric Anderson, Editor-in-Chief of Awards Watch. It's so nice to have you here again to get us up to date. It's, it's, there's a lot to talk about. Like every time we've done this, it's, <laughs> it's like we, we could do a daily show. Exactly. And, and this week we will talk about some of the news and changes out of Hollywood this unusual summer. There's some huge Oscar changes and things like that. But I thought it'd be fun to start to talk about a few things that have happened, have not been postponed. And that's three of the movies we talked about last time. And we said that we really loved these trailers and, and we're hoping. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, uh, on these films. That's The mm-hmm. Five Bloods, Shirley, and The King of Staten Island. What's your mini reviews i loved all three and in in varying degrees i think based a little bit on on expectation uh shirley came out of sundance my reviewer that was there absolutely loved it uh we got the trailer and poster quote which was really shocking uh and it is it's a brilliant movie it's very josephine decker it's the kind of thing too where once you've once you watched it, I think only Elizabeth Moss could have d- done it. She has the right sense of mania and fear and anxiety and intensity. She's so so good. I and just, without saying anything, just in her face, there's these long shots of her face, and you're like freaked out, and you you understand every emotion she's going through just looking at those. I've never seen anyone do close-ups like that. And she's got, you know, those wire glasses and that stringy hair, and it just kind of, it lends to this, like, angry librarian <laughs> intensity. And she's, she's awesome. She's She's amazing. I... I loved it. Everybody's good. Everyone is good. Mm. Michael Stuhlbarg is kind of terrifying in it. His microaggressions and the way that it speaks to, you know, accidentally or on purpose to so much of how sexual misconduct and harassment is viewed now in a mm-hmm. way that it was not then. So we're watching something that, you know, takes place. 50 years ago, but we're watching it through the lens of how we feel now. And so all of those little touches and, and demands for affection that he has with, with, um, I'm forgetting her name, the young girl that's staying with him, um, are, they just, they, they speak differently now. And his controlling of Shirley, the little things he does to sort of be able to maintain their lifestyle. He wants her to write really well, but at the same time, he's sort of controlling her whole process. And Yeah, it, it is amazing. And that that's kind of a common theme, I think, with stories about men who are artists or creators of some kind and then have a wife or female counterpart that is trying to be successful in it as well. And there's this passive aggressive nature to the husband that pretends that he wants to uh, nurture it, but really, you know, it's a matter of, you know, you can never be 
greater than I am. I'm so happy you talked about because that theme, not many people have talked about that particular theme, but I thought it was really interesting, the, the dynamics in their relationship. But that's the thing about the movie. There's so many different layers to it that you can talk about every single character's different relationship to each other and what it means in the context that you're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it, I know a lot of the you know initial reactions to it were the similarities to uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which are are definitely there just based on the dynamic and, and age. And two couples. Of, and yeah. Of these two couples. But it's not, it's not really quite like that. <laughs> what did you think of Spike Lee's new movie, The Five Bloods? I thought it was extraordinary. I loved... Um, <laughs> I, I I love the perspective. I love that we just rarely, if ever, have seen uh, a, a Black perspective of the Vietnam War. I love how challenging it was. I think it makes Black Klansmen look pretty tame in terms of Spike Lee really pushing up against what's happening in society and politics right now in the moment and especially by making the lead character a, a, a Trump supporter. I loved every performance. Um, I loved something that a lot of people didn't and that was the decision to not de-age the actors in the flashbacks because it gives an entirely different um, viewpoint of what the flashbacks are. I, that didn't bother me at all, but that's because I kept thinking that it was a, that it was a choice that, that all those type of things are memory and the memory you have is in the age you are now, that it was a deliberate choice that they were actually remembering it in the moment now when they were going through all these discussions and everything. So, but I, I understand that some people were very taken aback. Well, for me, most of the movie is, is seen through the lens of, of Paul Delroy Lindo's PTSD from then. So it's going to be a skewed version of the truth and of history exactly. and of that, that memory. Uh, and, and I just thought it was a, a genius choice, but I, I loved it so much. I loved it. I've seen it twice now, but I'm sure if I see it again, it'll be, there's so many things. So, so many pop cultural references, so many movies he's playing with, so many cliches about how we've portrayed Vietnam War in pop culture and what he, you know, the black experience within that. There's so many different things to go back and look at that I missed the first time. And so of the moment, it's incredible how of the moment it is. Yeah, very much. And it's, it's a great looking movie too. Mm. I think it's, one of his best looking movies in forever. I mean, I did tweet that I think it's his best movie in 20 years. And I do think that is true, but it's, it's like how summer of Sam from 1999 was so saturated. The color was so saturated and do the right thing also is because you're trying to give the audience this feeling of how hot it is. And you're doing it more than just by, you know, seeing people sweat. It's the saturation of color just makes you feel like you're sitting out and baking in the sun. Mm -hmm. And there's elements of that in, in Defy Bloods, but also just, just a wider a range of, 
of shots. There's multiple aspect ratios, which yes. I absolutely love. Yeah, when he that goes also, to the flashbacks and yeah, yeah it, it just kind of helps the viewer a little bit and it just it's it's a storytelling device and I I thought it was fantastic. Okay, and then the the last one um is Judd Apatow's The King of Staten Island with Pete Davidson. Um I think you may like that one more than me. <laughs> you know, it's not a story that I even should care or like at all because I mean we were talking a little bit before we started this about disclosure and and how important visibility is and 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 how we see so many kinds of stories and then not so many kinds of stories and you could fill volumes and volumes of documentaries about how many stories of shitty guys you know trying to judd apatow's man child (laughs) exactly man child stories and this is certainly another one but it was just a surprise i guess it was a surprise by how good pete davidson was um obviously marissa tomei was amazing bill burr amazing but i don't want to i don't want to say that i thought it was great because my expectations were low for it but that's certainly a part of it. Mm-hmm. I think Pete Davidson on SNL is a really, really ill fit. It's, it's, when he talks about or uses his, his mental illness history as a part of the comedy, there's a really interesting balance there that can be, I think, kind of beneficial. But then at the same time, it feels like it's almost like he's being taken advantage of and he doesn't. Like he's not even in control of what's happening. And it's really, really awkward without the beneficial part. And I think it's really because it's live television. And sort of like if you give Adam Sandler the right director and the right script, he can do a really good job. But otherwise it's, you know, the the brain dead comedies and that's it and whatever. And I think that was the case here. And I think he's really good. He's very convincing. And... I, I liked it. I don't even care. It was two hours and 15 minutes. His his movies are always long. I I completely agree that Pete Davidson, he's he's really good. He's really good both in the, the sort of more dramatic scenes, but as the sort of regular scenes as well. I was surprised at how easy it was for him to ease into the acting role. And I generally liked it. I just thought that I, first I wanted more Marissa Tomei. I think that Judd Apatow has a tendency to not really go, as deep as I want into the female characters. And I think this was such an interesting one who's lost her husband. And, and I think they could have gone even one step deeper into the tragedy. Didn't even have to have changed the real story that Pete mm-hmm. Davidson's dad um, uh, died in 9-11. Here he's a fireman who also died tragically, but in a fire, he could have actually kept that too if they were staying so close to the truth and really really gone even deeper into the whole family's loss. Um, it was just something that was sort of on the, something was missing one more level. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're going to have a two hour and 15 minute movie, you can certainly give the B stories a little bit more time mm-hmm. and pull a little bit from the A story. Yeah, exactly. And the A story was that kind of repetitive, I think. That's a lot of valid complaints that people have had for it, yeah. But I'm, I'm, but you're completely right. I mean, like Steve Buscemi, incredible. Oh, 
Oh my God. So, so it's yeah. absolutely worth seeing. I mean, I have to say for a year as weird and as this one, um, those are three good movies that we got this summer right out off the bat. Yeah, they all came out in the same week. I'm not complaining. <laughs> At all. I, th- I think one of the great things about it, and I think mostly Defy Bloods because it, I think it benefited maybe a little bit more than the rest, is that it felt, even though it was obviously only on Netflix, it felt like we were finally getting our our first movie again. Yeah, you mentioned that last time, and it really was. I, I was thinking about that when it came out. It, it was completely true. That's what it felt like when it came out. It's like, yes, we do have a real premiere now, and we're you know this feels great, and it's a huge movie, and everyone's talking about it, and it's a it's a collective experience we thought we were going to miss. Yeah, and it's uh, something really great that's happened as after this too is that we've been able to see and and read different, really different voices than just, you know, white film critics on, on what this movie is and what it, it meant to them. Uh, I have a contributor that just wrote an epic piece uh, from a Vietnamese perspective on the film, but also just how Hollywood and how people think about Vietnam and they only think about Vietnam in as a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, um, it's a great piece. I hope people read it. It's wonderful and very personal and connected to, you know, activism of, of today. It's, I, I'm extremely proud. Talking about things that haven't happened yet, um, Chris Nolan's <laughs> attempt to save cinema is two weeks delayed again. They ha- do have a new date. So Tenet will be out not mid-July, but end of July. Do you want to start a drinking game or something? I, it, you know, we, we would be so drunk all the time. <laughs> it's, it's such a weird thing what he's doing. And We, we already know now that New York is not going to be, is not going to have, you know, bars and movie theaters and gyms open in the way that would be necessary for a July 31st release. So I don't know what, I don't know what the, the end game is from him or Warner Brothers and what they're trying to do. I don't know. It's, um, it's very strange and it's really, there's a hubris to it that I find extremely unappealing. How is the feeling in general in, on the West Coast where you are? Um, I mean, they are going to start opening theaters now, I understand. Do you think people will go? What are, what are people saying? How's the feeling? So uh, the gym that we go to opened yesterday mm-hmm. for the first time, and it's a massive, massive gym. It's like 44,000 square feet. It's huge. And we expected, they have a lot of fantastic uh, precautions in place and uh, like they they moved a whole bunch of gym equipment into like basketball courts and handball courts so that there's a thing spread out and it's beautifully laid out now and our expectation was that people were going to be so want to get back so quickly and in mass that we'd be waiting you know in line for machines and and we got there and it was a ghost town. We were three of us in 
one section of the gym and there were never more than two other people in there at the same time as us. And not because of that, just there was no one there. And yesterday too. Uh, it's really strange. So I don't know if the reopening of theaters is going to be, I think it's going to be an extremely slow rollout for people to feel comfortable, at least where I'm at. There's a lot of Oscar news out since we last talked. And the big thing is that they've moved the whole ceremony into April to April 25th. What are your thoughts? Uh, I'm glad for it. I, 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 you know, I'm old enough to remember when March and April were not strange dates for the Oscars. It was the common date for the Oscars, but that was also before the era of screeners and when movies were in theaters for six months to a year. And they were so that people could see them uh, before the show, unlike now, which wants to rush everything and, you know, have these Christmas day limited releases nominations you know three weeks later and nobody has seen the movies it's it's been the biggest i think failure of this era of the oscars is understanding that while it's the industry celebrating itself it's the audience that watches and if you don't give the audience a chance to see the films who are they going to root for when they're looking at, at best picture nominees because so many people won't have seen the films. So I think there will be more of a chance for that, except they've also extended the eligibility. I was just going to say, won't they just push it to the limit? Yep. They'll do it last minute either way. Mm-hmm. So I think what's going to happen, even though we haven't seen it yet, but I think what we might see is a lot of these late December releases are going to find themselves in January and February, like it's November, December. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. So like West Side Story and the, the movies that are slated for December may be pushed. West Side Story's release is a whole nother can of worms to talk to about. Um, I don't think there will be a dramatic change in the movies that are already supposed to be big releases around Christmas. Because that, that itself is its own movie holiday. But I do think that because of the extension, things that were, you know, would get like a one-week release in four theaters and then go wide a month or more later, I think we'll see a difference there with those movies. I think we'll see some of those hit in January and February in a very different way. I hope so. I think it would be kind of cool for that to happen, to have less, fewer of these uh, limited platform releases and maybe something a little wider so that people can, can see them. And January, February are already traditionally pretty dead periods for releasing films. So if you have, you know, your big November, December releases there instead, that's a lot of great real estate to work with. And I hope that studios do that as long as we're all, you know, alive and not <laughs> yes. in the zombie apocalypse. Exactly. It doesn't seem far off. But what does this mean for, so the eligibility is all until end of February. So um, yeah. will that mean that it'll only be end of February to December next year? So a much shorter window for 2021? I 
I believe so. I keep having to go back to the rules and regulations that they posted because I'm still not super clear on it, but I think they're going to have to do it like that. Otherwise there won't be any, any way to correct the, the calendar year thing. There's also a bunch of other things they've come up with. One is that they've expanded the best picture category and added some diversity requirements. Um, what is that about? Well, that's that's going into effect for the next year. Okay, I that's believe. 2021. Yes, yeah. So this year will still be the sliding scale preferential ballot. And then in for the 94th, it will be like what they did for 2009 and 2010 which is what they should have done the entire time. 10 best pictures, yes. nothing else. No yes. eight pictures or seven pictures, 10. Yes. It's, those two years gave us such really fantastic diversity, even, you know, even grabbing up terrible films. I don't really care. They all represented something from that year, whether it's a blockbuster or a tiny movie or an LGBTQ movie or a female fronted movie or a, uh, a black-led movie or a Hispanic-led movie, whatever it is, it gave us so much more to work with. Yeah, because the, the reason for that is there's basically more slots, so you could actually you can look at a wider range of pictures. Yes, even though with the ballot how it is, you still just vote for five, and then it kind of just keeps going down until you get to whatever the magic number is. I feel like they've made it so much harder than it needs to be. And that and Corona on top of it and new dates and everything. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> but I forgot, I forgot, of course, to ask, what does this mean for all of the precursors, the Golden Globes, the SAG Awards, all of those that generally come ahead of the, um, of, of the Oscars and, and, and have a lot of meaning towards who, you know, when we're predicting who's going to win, are they all moving forward also? They are, and that's kind of what we were wondering with, what's going to happen is, is if everybody was just going to fall in line and literally within an hour of the Oscars <laughs> announcing all of their changes, BAFTA did the exact same thing. And now everything from the Globes to like the Cinema Audio Society just announced yesterday too, that they've also moved. They're always at right just a week or so before the Oscars and they've moved and they are also extending their eligibility. Uh, Critics' Choice Awards also are. So everyone is going to. It's all going to just shuffle in line. And I, I guess they kind of had to do that. Spirit Awards did as well, of course. I guess they have to do that, but they don't really have to. <laughs> it, would, it would kind of be like how how it almost used to be with BAFTA and the Oscars and, and how BAFTA had a very different eligibility time. So something that could win at the Oscars wouldn't even be eligible for BAFTA that year. Right. Different like, years. I think, like I think it was Halle Berry's win and, and um, Charlize Theron's Oscar wins were not eligible for BAFTA because they didn't come out in the UK in time. And they were like, I don't care. <laughs> They're not going to, they didn't change it to make that happen, but they have, in the last two decades, decade and a half, have really stepped in line much more with the Oscars, and everybody is right now. So, 
I thought I would go back just if people are wondering about this can of worms that I open is a big movie. It's Steven Spielberg's um, remake of West Side Story, which I've already sort of, other than the fact that the young cast seems incredible, really why we need a remake of West Side Story, but that's you and I can discuss mm-hmm. some other time. But what is this can of worms that's happened now? Uh, well, last week, a young woman, and then more after her detailed uh, some sexual harassment, misconduct, and more against Ansel Elgort, who is the star, he plays Tony. And we're just in an era where that kind of thing is not as easily swept under the rug. So I I don't know, and no one has said anything, Spielberg hasn't said anything, Warner Brothers, or 20th Century Fox hasn't said anything uh, so far as to what may happen. But I can't imagine that that something won't happen. I mean, obviously they're not gonna reshoot the film, and all of his scenes, uh, even without the pandemic, it would be an incredibly difficult and super expensive task. And, but I think what's going to, I think what's going to happen is that it's going to be so heavily marred because even the content of the film, which involves sexual assault and a it lot does, of yeah. other things, are going to be completely overwhelmed by this allegation. Um, And regardless of the success or quality of the film, it's gonna be under that umbrella the entire time. And I don't imagine, you know, if if we are in, you know, a normal press arena by December, that we'll see Ansel Elgort doing very much of it. He will be on the press tour, that's for sure. I know it's only June, but I, I can't imagine that there won't be something that happens with the film as a result. Someone was suggesting that they do a Christopher Plummer, that they that they edit him out like they did with Kevin Spacey. And I don't remember even which movie it was. What movie was it? All the Money in the World. All the Money in the World. They just edit him out and put in, I guess not Christopher Plummer. I don't think he'd do a great Joni, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, with with Plummer, it was pretty easy to do to to drop in those reshoots. Not so much when you're the lead of of the movie. And in big dance numbers, and exactly, yeah, how no. would you even manage that? Yeah, no. no, no. Well, that's going to be interesting. I'm wondering what this is, what this means going forward. Um, I mean, if they're going to have to start, you know, checking people more before they even start shooting and casting and things like that. I don't see why not. You can barely, you can barely get a regular job at a grocery store or retail without a background check. Come on. Most of the people we already know, you know, that they already have these things in their baggage and they're still casting them, which is just unbelievable. Yes. Yes. I was just thinking about the new Mel Gibson things that came up now with mm-hmm. Winona Ryder. He just had a new big voice in an animated movie and things like that. I mean, that's 
these are not stories we haven't heard before. No, no, he has thrived. And, and yeah, I just, I had just posted something yesterday that, you know, Winona Ryder was blacklisted for shoplifting in 2001. Uh, and everything that's happened for, to Mel Gibson has been Oscar nominations and more movies in, in, and of course the, the Melpologist came out in full force because they're psychotic and disgusting. Um, but the double standard is extraordinary, extraordinary. It took Winona Ryder so long to be welcomed back in a real way. Really around than, Stranger Things felt yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she had, well, and, and um, I think Black Swan was, was probably a pretty good one for her. But up to that point, it was bit parts and it was not much and, and scraps, really. And she deserved so much better. Do you think that Oscars actually be canceled completely? I mean, if we're still in the same situation that we're in, in terms of the pandemic, well, I mean, can they put it in July and September? Will they keep pushing it forward or will they just say, let's quit 2020 and move on to 2021? I don't think that they will push it any further than April 25th. That will already be the the latest Oscars in its history, except for the very first one, which was, I think, May 1st or May 8th. And so this will be the latest Oscars ever in 93 years, 92 years. So I don't think that they will go anywhere past that. I think what might happen if we are not out of the weeds of this is something that they should have been considering for a while, but have always been really behind on. And that is understanding how to utilize a worldwide audience better. Because I mean, again, I, I come from a generation where literally a billion people would watch the Oscars every year. Oh, me too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was... And that's before there were 7 billion people on the planet. Because everybody watched. It was a worldwide thing, even though it was a largely American film show. And with the availability of streaming, whether it's YouTube or, you know, anything directly from ABC or the Oscars website, there is such a missed opportunity to have viewers and have a show uh, online that absolutely could do that. I don't know what it would look like in terms of an actual show with presenters and attendees and stuff. And that's, that's a whole nother can of worms. There's already no one that wants to host it. And yeah, well, that too. Where that's one problem less. It, it definitely is. But, but I, I think, and I hope that, and they have time, obviously, that they consider the possibility of, of having an online version of the show, or at least for future ones, make that available for people because that's how people are watching things now. But and you mean they, no audience and no big show, just a small. I, I mean going. I mean going forward, regardless of if it's a pandemic-induced no audience, or if it's a if it's a regular show with at the Dolby, uh, it should still be online at the same time as, as the show because that will get them the viewership that they really want. I mean, ABC Disney paid 
got so much money to host the Oscars, I think all the way through 2028. And they still haven't developed a plan for an online version to bring in literally billions of people. Come on, do it. All the ads will still be there. Do it. Someone uh, should uh, get the memo about this. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll be discussing new changes very soon because <laughs> it's not not much of what we've talked about has actually it's been moved forward and changed. But um, in in the scope of some difficult times, it's kind of entertaining. A little bit, and I'm, I'm glad that we've at least had some uh, films to tide us over this summer to talk about, so Good that we're ones. talking about something more than just how shitty things are well we'll get back to each other as soon and talk about more good movies and things thank you so much sounds good thanks you've watched them in unforgettable adventures love affairs and tragedies now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories from the makers of death of a rock star and death of a sports star this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And action. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.